Uh, good morning and welcome to church. My name's Rowan. Uh, great to see you here as we gather together to hear from God's Word as we've just done. So why don't we pray together this morning that we would see what God would want us to see in His Word uh, and understand what is going on in this passage. Let's pray. Father, You know each of our hearts. You know what has been going on in the lives of each person here this week. As we come to you and your word today, we ask you would refresh us. You would point us to what you have to say. You would help us by your spirit and through your word to see clearly what you are like and clearly what we are like. We pray that through your spirit today, you would send us out changed. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. What does it look like to have a spiritual encounter? Lots of people uh, around the world, when we talk about spirituality, we think about, you know, this calm and centered and peaceful kind of Zen feeling that we get. That's what we think of when we think of spirituality. It's like Zen. It's like, hmm, that's what's there. Uh, People talk about like a warm glow, a fuzzy feeling or the occasional shiver down the spine. How can you tell if you've actually had a life-changing encounter with the true and living God? That you just don't believe in Him, but that you've actually met Him. What we see in God's Word today, what we're going to see is that a truly spiritual encounter with God, a life-changing encounter with God, is not a warm glow or a fuzzy feeling, but it's the stripping bare and smashing down of ourselves. For that is the only way that we can experience the warmth and love and blessing of the God who made us. It's the only way to truly encounter the true and living God is to see who we are in the light of who he is. Over the last few weeks, we've been following the story of the family of Abraham. In a sense, we've been looking in detail at the mihi-mihi, the family story of God's people and his promises. And one of the things that you notice about these stories in the Bible is they're very different to other religious and cultural stories that are in existence. I don't know if you've looked at the other stories that are in existence. They generally talk about these great people with great virtue, And it kind of draws us to follow the heroes of other stories. But when we open the pages of the Bible, we find these people who really aren't worth following at all. Uh, You meet the kind of people who things just don't go right for. You, you You get frustrated as you read these narratives because the central figures of the story of the Bible are dropkicks. They are. They're shockers. They haven't got life together. It shows you some of the reality of life, but they lie and they cheat and they steal and they sit back while all sorts of atrocities happen. And it makes you go, why? Why is the Bible so different to other stories in existence? I want to tell you here is why. It's because the Bible isn't here to show us how to live a good life or a moral life. It's here to show us how to meet God, how to experience the true and living God. Last week, we met a man named Jacob, whose name literally means deceiver. There's a tip for you, if you want to name your kids, just call them little deceiver. Would work well for some, probably I should have been called that. But that's exactly what Jacob does all through his life. Uh, He just deceives. He cons his way into uh, his brother's birthright. He steals the family inheritance. And we see the story of Jacob broken into three sections. Basically, chapter 25 to 28 is in the promised land where he's doing these cons on his family uh, into the birthright and getting the inheritance. Then in chapter 29 to 31, he leaves the promised land and goes out of it. 
Uh, and then we can see the deceiver getting deceived. We're going to skip over that section uh, this week. Uh, you would have looked at it in, in small groups throughout the week, in connect groups. Hopefully you're in a connect group. I want to encourage you uh, to get into a connect group if you're not. But we would have seen that he gets deceived. Uh, Laban was there, who is his uncle. And he, he goes to win his, um, Laban's daughter Rachel's hand in marriage and so works for his uncle for seven years. He's in, isn't the, at the wedding ceremony. Uh, she walks down the aisle. They get married. He goes home that night and finds out that it's Rachel's ugly sister, Leah. And he's like, no, what have you done? You've tricked me. Now I've married Leah. And you're like, ah. And then he goes back and it's this horrible thing. He's like, you work another seven years, then you can have Rachel. And so that's what he does. The deceiver gets deceived. Uh, his father-in-law then tricks him out of all sorts of wages. And you stand back and you look at a little bit of the judgment of God in that section. And then we get to this week's section in chapter 32 to 35. And we're back moving into the promised land again. And at each boundary marker of going out of the promised land and then coming back into the promised land, Jacob has an encounter with God. He encounters God. He has a vision and angels on a ladder. And then this week we see he wrestles with some sort of angelic man. There's some experience of God here. And what we're going to see is that despite Jacob's deception and sin, God still treats him generously. It's where you see God's phenomenal grace. You see the grace of God in chapter 31. We see that Jacob was continuing to deceive. Uh, His deception was answered with deception between his father-in-law and him, yet God still blesses him. When he leaves Laban, he he gets away with his family and his flocks. There's even a a positive relationship with his father-in-law, even though on the way he leaves, he deceives his father-in-law. They steal a whole heap of stuff and they do the runner. They don't even say goodbye. They leave the land. And you're kind of like, man, this, this Jacob, even though he's been deceived, he goes back at deceiving. It's just deception upon deception upon deception in every way that you look. But God still blesses him. You stand back and go, wow, why would God do that to a drop kick like him? And it's all because of one fact. God promised his grace. He promised he would bless this family, that he would give them undeserved blessings. That's what grace is, an undeserved gift. Jacob didn't deserve God's blessing, but God blessed him despite his deception and his rejection because God promised he would. God always keeps his promises. That's the grace of God. He always keeps his promises. But even more than that, God's grace doesn't allow us to keep on rebelling. He doesn't leave us in our rebellion. He calls us back to himself. So come with me, Genesis 32 verse 1, as we see some of God's grace on Jacob. Jacob went on his way and God's angels met him. When he saw them, Jacob said, this is God's camp. So he called that place Mahanaim. Now, here is an encounter with God. We don't know what went on. Who knows what went on between God's angels who met with Jacob. But all we can work out from this whole section is what Jacob does next. He humbles himself. He changes in some way. He realizes what he's done. He's deceived his brother Esau. His hairy, boisterous, angry brother Esau. And he now realizes he needs to seek restoration. He humbles himself and seeks restoration with Esau. Now, the last that we heard of Esau, uh, Esau wanted to kill Jacob. It's not a good family relationship. At this point, they're left. Esau is like, I want to kill this guy. 
And so Jacob's mum says, right, get out, go, 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 leave. And so that's why he leaves. And he's been away and he doesn't know what his brother's going to be like. He was fuming. He got done out of his birthright. He got done out of his inheritance. He is so angry at Jacob. But now, verse 3 of chapter 22, sorry, 32. Genesis 32, verse 3. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, in the country of Edom. He commanded them, you are to say to my Lord Esau, hear the language, my Lord Esau, this is what your servant Jacob says. I've been staying with Laban and have been delayed until now. I have oxen and donkey and flocks and male and female slaves. I've sent this message to inform my Lord in order to seek your favor. He's a very different Jacob. His encounter with God that has just happened here has somehow humbled him. There's a change in this man. He calls his brother my Lord. He calls his brother, uh, he calls himself his brother's servant. There's something going on here in the life of Jacob, some little bright hope. Maybe he's got it. Maybe he's understood. He needs to come back for what he's done. He seeks restoration. See, the grace of God, the gift of God, the blessings of God call us not only to enjoy God's blessings, but to humility and repentance. The grace of God calls us to humility and repentance. But then the messenger returns from Esau. That's not good news. Your big, hairy, raging, angry hulk of a brother has got 400 men with him and they're coming to see you. How's that for a message? <laughs> like at that moment, you're going to be like, what is going to happen? I'm, I'm not very happy about this. I don't know what that will be like. It'll be something like the Hulk coming toward you with all the Marvel characters. I don't know, this is not a real situation, but yeah. You can imagine it, right? You're like, this is not looking good. 400 men and me, I am not happy. You can imagine how Jacob's feeling. You probably don't need to imagine, though. We might not have been in a situation where someone is threatening to kill us. But we all know the fear of having to confront a broken relationship. Having to face up to someone that we've hurt, someone whose trust that we've broken. We know that sense of deep guilt and shame that sits within us, that we want to flee from it. We, we don't want to do this, but we know that we should, we ought. We ought to apologize for hurting them. We ought to face up to the consequences of breaking someone's trust. We know that feeling. And Jacob does what many of us too often do. He does everything he possibly can to minimize damage to himself. Right? That's what you do. I want to get out of this alive. I want to try and see this relationship work. And then he prays, just in case. Look at verse 7 of chapter 32. Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Understatement. He divided the people with him into two camps, along with the flocks and cattle and camels. He thought if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the remaining one can escape. Right? He's thinking smart. I've got to do everything I can to minimize the damage. My brother's coming and I'm going to die. And then he prays. All right, quick, let's talk to God. And what we find is it's a great prayer. He's definitely encountered God in some way at the start of this chapter. It's filled with the wording of God's promise to Abraham. Look at verse 9. Jacob said, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the Lord who said to me, go back to your land and to your family and I will cause you to prosper. Hear the humility. I'm unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you've shown your servant. Indeed, I crossed over this Jordan with my staff and now I have become two camps. 
Please rescue me from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid of him. Otherwise he may come and attack me, the mothers and their children. You have said, I will cause you to prosper, and I will make your offspring like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. The prayer is great. He gets the promises of God. He's trusting in him. He's definitely had an encounter with the true and living God. But he's overcome by the fear of man. He's overcome by the fear of man. Verse 13, chapter 32. He spent the night there and took part of what he had brought with him as a gift to his brother Esau. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 20 ewes, 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. Imagine the noise. This is huge. That is 550 animals. This is a gift fit for a king. This is like, you know, you, you can have, I don't know what it is. It's, it's huge. He entrusted them to his slaves, verse 16, as separate herds and said to them, go on ahead of me, but leave some distance between the herds, right? He's like, okay, how do I, how do I help him to kind of love me again? He told the first one, verse 17, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, uh, who do you belong to? Where are you going? And whose animals are these ahead of you? Notice the animals go first. He says, then tell them, they belong to your servant Jacob. Now imagine being the servant who's going out at that point. I'm going to say that they're Jacob's. What's going to happen to me? <laughs> You're like, oh, are they they're J- Jacob's? He just sends them out ahead of him. You're like, okay, it's one way to do it. They are a gift sent to you, my Lord. And look, he's behind us. Verse 19. He also told the second one and the third one and everyone who was walking behind the animals. Say the same thing to Esau when you find him. You were to say, look, your servant Jacob is right behind us. For he thought, I want to appease Esau with the gift that's going ahead of me. After that, I can face him and perhaps he will forgive me. For the first time in Jacob's life, he wants to come last. Last at the end of the line. He always wanted to be first, the firstborn, to get the blessing, to get the birthright. But now he wants to be at the end because he's afraid of man. He's afraid of his brother. He's experienced the grace of God. Yes, he's, he's undeserved favor. He's, he's met with angels. God's grace has pushed him to repentance and wanting restitution with his brother for what he stole. But now he doesn't trust God to look after him. You heard him at the end. I want to appease Esau with the gift that's going ahead of me. After that, I can face him. I can do this. Perhaps he will forgive me. He doesn't trust God to look after him and keep his promises. He knew God would secure a blessing for him. He just prayed that in the prayer that he prayed to God. God had told him that beforehand, but God's word was not enough for Jacob. How often the fear of man overrides the fear of God for us. I see it in my life. I know God's promises, but I want want to bring them about, and so I don't quite trust that God will do with them. When circumstances are at odds with God's promises... We so often pay lip service to God and resort to human effort to deliver. We do the same with God as well. We know that God has promised in Jesus that our sins are paid for. We know that he's done it. But deep down, I find myself slipping into thinking, well, God will be happy with me because of my actions, because of what I can do, because of what I can offer him, because of the way I I do whatever is culturally appropriate for Christians in whatever church we're in. You know, I go along to a connect group, I'm regular at church, I serve, I read my Bible, I I tick all these boxes and there's a little sense of me where I'm like, 
I am acceptable to God. I know that Jesus died for me, but I think I'm acceptable because of what I have done. It's so easy to think that we can appease God, that we can right the wrong that we've done or secure His blessing. Friends, Christianity is not about what we do, but what God has done. And I'll be very clear by the end of this story. We just need to accept God at His word. If He said it, it will happen. We can trust Him. God is in control. He is consistently faithful. We, meet, we need not fear man. We need not rely on the efforts of man, but trust in the promises of God. Do see the amazing freedom we have. Jesus has done it for us. Do you see how good God is? He's done what we need. He's taken the penalty in Jesus that we deserve. Well, the good news is, that God's grace does not let us continue whimpering to the fear of man. When we truly encounter the true and living God, He graciously installs in us the fear of God, not the fear of man. The fear of God. Jacob experiences the fear of God. Chapter 32, verse 21. Read with me. So the gift was sent on ahead of him while he remained in the camp that night. During the night, Jacob got up. I imagine he couldn't sleep. He took his two wives and two female slaves and his 11 sons. He crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream along with all his possessions. It's probably the darkest night of Jacob's life. As he sat alone, reflecting on what the sunlight of tomorrow would bring. Shivering because they just walked across the ford of Jabok at night, quite dangerous, wet. Trembling at the approach of his brother. Imagine that night. You've experienced some of it. That day before you go to talk to, apologize to that person that you have hurt. That feeling in your stomach. But little did Jacob know, Esau was the least of his fears that night. He's sitting there quietly, trembling, thinking through what the morning will bring. And then he feels a hand on his shoulder, a firm hand. He was in the mighty hole of someone who seemed intent on taking his life. And we don't really know what is happening. Jacob sees nothing. The assailant is silent and nameless. But Jacob himself fights back. There's a fight. There's a wrestle. He rose mightily to the occasion and all night long, six or seven hours, this man and Jacob are fighting. What is happening? Who is this? They're dripping with sweat. There's sweat in their beards, in their hair. Their legs are kind of going here and there, grappling arms all night long. You can imagine that there are moments of kind of brief pause where there's labored breathing and then renewed fury, kind of gouging, pulling, a whole heap of budding and wrestling. What is happening at this moment? Unknown to Jacob through most of that agonizing night, he was wrestling with the divine. He was encountering God. The concluding verses make it clear that it was God. And if we're unsure, Hosea 12 verse 4 makes it very clear. Have a look on the screen. Jacob struggled with the angel and prevailed. God was Jacob's ultimate and intimate enemy. Jacob was wrestling with God. Now he certainly at that time didn't see the wrestling for what it was, a parable of his entire life. 
Him wrestling with God, deceiving but still experiencing the promises of God. Throughout the long narrative of Jacob's life, his whole life has been characterized as grasping and struggling. He'd been um, wrestling with his brother from birth and then with his father to get the blessing and then with his father-in-law in in chapters 29 and 31. And then now he's, he's wrestling and struggling with God. That's what he is, the deceiver, the grasper, the wrestler. Jacob has always struggled with both man and God. And as the two wrestled on, Jacob had no idea that he was in the grip of God's relentless grace. He was in the grip of God's relentless grace. Hours passed, and we read this in verse 25. When the man saw he could not defeat Jacob, he struck Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. Now, this moment, Jacob is reduced to a kind of a clinging doll. His disjointed leg is probably hanging, useless in the fire. He's cried out in some way. You get this picture that he's holding on just by the skin of his teeth. And the opponent we hear has just done it with a touch, a touch that dislocated. And now perhaps Jacob's begun to wonder at the origin of this enemy. And as the story unfolds, we see this is the crippling grace of God. Now, of course, God could have come down right there and right then and wiped him out. There's a sense here which we read, oh, did Jacob almost beat God? No, God was much bigger than that. But God is doing something here to kind of show Jacob something. For God to come down and fight with us would be like a battle between a human and an ant. Now, I've seen some pretty big ants, but it's not very hard to squish them. You just do that and and they're done. God could have just wiped out like he did to Sodom and Gomorrah. A whole nation had gone, they're gone, and, and, and they're gone. But he didn't. God, in this battle, restrains himself. He's kind of like a, like a father wrestling his kids on the lounge room floor. He's restraining himself from throwing them out the window as he could and just saying, no, 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 I'm teaching them a lesson, a, a strong lesson about who I am and who God is. And perhaps it was this moment, the dislocating touch That Jacob, like a little child, realizing his dad is stronger, realizes who he is really grappling with. And so at that moment, he holds on. In all humility and dependence, he says, bless me. He will not let this great one go without saying, bless me. And he finally resorts to trusting in the God who keeps his promises. Jacob finally resorts to recognize he can't do it on his own. He's clinging on to his leg, broken, crippled, wounded, brought to his knees, but asking this God to bless him. He is now treating God as he ought. He has experienced the fear of God. How do we know what's going on in his heart? Well, the rest of Hosea 12 verse 4 fills it in. Jacob struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. It was not from proud dominance that Jacob asked for a blessing, but with tears, in dependence on who this God is. What is your name, the opponent asks. Jacob confesses, deceiver. What is your name? Deceiver. It's a confession of guilt. I am Jacob. I am a deceiver. No longer will your name be deceiver, says God. 
No longer will you grasp at the promises of God yourself. From now on, I will call you Israel, which means literally God fights. I'll remind you that you cannot do it, that you are wounded, but that you have won because I fight for you. God lovingly weakens himself. He does not give Jacob what Jacob deserves for his rebellion at that moment, but he keeps his promises. What a God. And at last, Jacob's persistence turns to awe. Look at verse 30 of chapter 32. Jacob then named the place Peniel. For I have seen God face to face, he said, and have been delivered. And the sun shone on him as he passed by Peniel limping because of his hip. When Jacob fled Canaan 20 years earlier, his flee was marked by the ominous sunset of darkness on him. But now, as he looks to enter back into the promised land, he is greeted on this day by a sunrise. For God has dealt with him. God has crippled him in a way. He has shown that he is dependent on him. He has brought him to his knees. He has stripped him bare. Jacob has encountered the true and living God. And this new blessed man sports two new distinctives. A new name, Israel. God fights. And a new crippling. I can't do this. I limp on my own. Jacob prevailed, not out of his own strength, but when he came to the end of himself. His weakness birthed strength. His defeat brought victory. His end was his beginning. It was the beginning of the fear of God, not the fear of man. And we see Jacob is a new man. Chapter 33, verse 1, listen to what happens. Now Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming toward him with 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female slaves. He put the the female slaves and their children first Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. And you're thinking, he's just going to do it. He's just putting them all in front. But look at verse 3. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. Not last and out of the way, but first to face his brother, weakened with a limp, but strengthened by his trust in the God who fights for him. And look at the response, verse 4. But Esau ran to meet him. He hugged him. He threw his arms around him and kissed him and they wept. God is faithful to his promises. God is the one who has won this battle. It wasn't the the sheep and the cows and the goats and nothing to do with that. It was God who worked in the heart of Esau. It was God who was faithful to his promise to bless Jacob. He always keeps his word. It's this beautiful scene. Jacob gives Esau as much as what he would have owed him as he can. His repentance is real. However, like many of the moments that God brings us to our knees, it doesn't last. It doesn't last. It's where we see the response of man. Just 12 verses later, Jacob returns to his old ways. God had told him to go to Canaan. Uh, he's, He's repented, he's gone back to Esau. God had told him to go to Canaan, but Esau has invited him further south to hang out with him. But Jacob doesn't want to go with Esau, but he kind of doesn't even want to go where God had said either. So rather than face his brother with the truth, I don't want to come with you, he lies, he deceives. Oh, maybe this isn't Israel, God fights. Maybe this is Jacob, the deceiver. 
He does it again. He says, yes, I'll come with you, Esau, to see. You just go ahead and I'll follow along behind you. I'm really far away. Esau says, no, no, come. Let me leave some people with you. He says, no, 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 you, you go um, and, I'll, and I'll follow after you. And then runs the other way. He just lies. How often our repentance is short-lived. Do you find that with yourself? You've encountered the true and living God. He has brought you to your knees. He has stripped you bare. You recognize how we need to change. We make some changes and then go right back to living how we already were. How quickly we resort to our own ways rather than being dependent on God. We struggle away independently from God. We want to be part of his plan, but we keep making our own and keep trying to bring about his promises our way. But out of God's grace, crisis comes. That's what this whole thing is a picture of. God won't let us sit in her rebellion. He will bring crisis in. Life becomes dislocated. Life gets taken out of joint. And suddenly, we have this appalling sense of our own incompetence, our own weakness, our own need to trust again the true and living God and how dependent we are on Him. Friends, as life throws us all sorts of dislocations and out-of-joint natures, remember God, by His grace, is bringing us to a point where we will trust Him rather than ourselves to fulfill His promises. But don't make your repentance short-lived. God might be wrestling with you today. He may be saying to you, as clever and as astute and as capable as you are, you've believed in me, but you've always manipulated your own life, made your own arrangements. Come back. Trust me. Trust my word today. But not only was Jacob's repentance short-lived, we find his obedience was also half-hearted. He uh, does not make the short trip across the Jordan into the promised land to set up camp in Bethel as he should. Look at verse 17. But Jacob went to Succoth. He bought a, built a house for himself, verse 17 in chapter 33. He stalls for his livestock. That's why the place is called Succoth. What's he doing? He just said in his prayer earlier, God, deliver me. He's then wrestled with God and he said, God, I know you're going to keep your promises. You've promised blessing. I'm going to go back to that land that you sent me to, but he doesn't go there. He sets up camp 30 kilometers away. Why? What's he doing? I'll kind of listen to you, God, but I won't go all the way to do what you say. What kind of half-hearted obedience comes about in what he is doing? And again, there's a a principle here that we must be reminded of. Half-hearted obedience is disobedience. To say to God, yeah, I'll take you half of what your word says, but not all the way. That's a little bit too far. That's just disobedience. Almost obedience is never enough. And this will cost Jacob dearly in the next chapter, where we're going to see the real life consequences of his actions play out. All sorts of atrocities happen. The rape of his daughter, the genocidal killing spree of his sons, resulting in Jacob and his family becoming a stench in the land. It's horrible. You look at it in connect groups this week. Being in the right ballpark is only okay if you're watching a baseball game. It's not nearly enough when it comes to obeying God. Nothing short of full obedience is required. God is calling you today to leave a habit, a sin, to stop rejecting His word, to come to His Son. 
Don't think that you've obeyed him by moving halfway toward that. Don't think that you've said, yes, I'm following God, if you've not said no to the sin that he is pointing out in our lives, or that be deceiving, lying, or or that be rejecting his son. I kind of want to follow Jesus. I come along to church, but you know, he's not Lord over all of my life. Hear the call of God today in the life of Jacob. Stop it. Stop it. We need to obey him fully. Partial obedience is always disobedience. No matter what our rationalizations are, God will not be fooled. He will not be mocked. And his sweet grace can be brutal. Remember that. But the thing that we're left with at the end of this story is the God who fights. Despite Jacob's half-hearted obedience, skip over in chapter 34, short-lived repentance and the effects of that, we see that God always keeps his promises and effectively calls people to himself. You cannot resist the effective call of God. And again, Jacob has another encounter. Chapter 35, verse 1. God said to Jacob, get up, go to Bethel and settle there. Build an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Jacob, stop it. Stop messing around with short-lived repentance and half-hearted obedience. Throw every single one of those hindrances that are pulling you away from where I said to go, just 30 kilometers away, just on the edge. Stop it. Place me at the center of your life. I'm so thankful for God's word. When you feel challenged by the word of God, don't see that as a bad thing, but a good thing. He's calling us back to himself. He's humbling us. He's stripping us bare and saying, let me fight for you. Verse 2, chapter 35. Listen to what happens. Listen to what they've done. So Jacob said to his family and all who were with him, get rid of the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your clothes. We must get up and go to Bethel. I will build an altar there to the God who has answered me in my days of distress. He has been with me everywhere I have gone. The God who fights for Jacob. Finally, he's there. The deceiver has stopped deceiving. The grasper has stopped grasping on his own terms and experienced the blessing of God. God promised he would return to Bethel. But Jacob had been overcome with the fear of man. He'd lost sight of the promises of God. We don't need to plan and scheme when we have God's promises. God has promised us a number of things. I will never leave you or forsake you for those who trust in Jesus. We don't need to try and make sure that we're doing certain special things that God won't leave us. He's promised it. If you trust in him, it is true. Hold on to that. Trust him. Don't think God has deserted me. He hasn't. He loves you. Jesus died for you. Don't walk away from it. All this, God works all things for the good of those who love him. How easy it is when life doesn't look like it's the way it should be to go, God has deserted me here as well. But trust his promises. He works all things for the good of those who love him. No matter what you're going through, you can trust God at his word because his word is true and always true. Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. That's the reality. As we're faced with all sorts of injustices, as we're faced with our own turning away, we're reminded of that promise. Jesus will come back and he will judge. And for those who've trusted in God's sending his son in our place, 
that judgment will be sinner but forgiven. We will not face the full experience of God's wrath. But like a father playing with his children on the floor, will be forgiven and loved. Today, I don't know where you're at. You might be in the midst of pain, crying out to God, why? Why is this happening? Why is life this way? But remember, God has become weak for us. He knows what it's like to suffer. He humbles us. He brings us to our knees so we might remain in Him. He is a good and loving and generous God who always keeps His promises. So as it feels like God has moved away, He hasn't. He's just making sure you stay in Him. Resist the urge to plan and scheme and grasp at God's promises of you know, life to its fullness. That will come when Jesus returns. Instead, trust God. Take Him at His word. Dependently pray to Him and walk alongside Him, whatever He has in front of us, no matter how hard that is, for He is God and He is good. And He is doing all things for the good of those who love Him. When things feel incredibly weak, when you feel like you're grasping at straws to hold things together, think about how God became ultimately weak for us. The only weakness that can really kill us is walking away from Jesus. So think about what Jesus did for us and hold on. But today, you might have heard the word of God. You might have heard his call to come to him, to trust him. But you've been fluffing around on the edges of God's call. You've been living with short-lived repentance and half-hearted obedience, dipping your toe in the edge of God's goodness, but never really jumping in. Please hear the call of the God who became weak, who took the full force of what we deserve on himself at the cross. He is here to call you today to get up, to stop fluffing around in half-hearted obedience and self-reliance. Stop dabbling with your pretend gods. Stop it. Stop thinking that you can be one foot in God's camp and one foot in my camp and give your life to Him. Hear God's call by His Spirit to you today. Stop hanging around the edges of Christianity and come to me, for I am your only hope. The only hope you have is God fighting for you. So come to God, who has answered our greatest distress. Change your clothes. Put your life in his capable hands. Throw out the gods that you've served and want to serve and trust that his way is best, that his promises are true. Stop deceiving yourself and trying to deceive God. Stop grasping at life and trust the God who has done it all. Hear his call today, friends. Come to him. Jesus said in John three thirty six, the one who believes the son has eternal life. But the one who refuses to believe in the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Whoever seeks to win on their own will lose the fight. But whoever surrenders to the God who became weak for us will experience the blessings that he promised those who trust in him. The truly spiritual experience the experience of encountering the true and living God is this. I need God to fight for me. For he's brought me to my knees and I have nothing. So let's walk away from God's word today, trusting in his promises, that Jesus has died, that he's risen, and that he's coming back again.
Let's pray. Father God, we admit that so often we, like Jacob, return to our own natural ways. We hear your word. We see your blessings. We even accept them. We pray to you and then we return back to ways thinking that we need to achieve things on our own. Father, we are sorry. We're sorry for not living the way that we ought. But we are so thankful that Jesus has come that he has died in our place, that he's taken the full force of your anger that we deserve on himself so that we can be forgiven. Father, help us to trust in your promises. Help us to see in times of weakness that they are times of great grace where you are showing us that we can't rely on ourselves, that you are pulling us into trusting in your promises, that you are holding us tight to your promises and fix our eyes on what is to come on that age when there's no more weeping or mourning or crying and pain and sin is done away with completely, that day that Jesus comes back, fix our eyes there. Father, let us flee half-hearted obedience. Show us where we're doing that. And by your Spirit, help us to say no and call us back to yourself in full repentance that we might trust you all our days. We pray that you would do work on our lives through your Word and by your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.